0: Welcome to the Healing Pain Podcast with Dr. Joe Tata. Each week we interview top experts in physical therapy, pain science, and integrative pain care. You'll learn the most up-to-date information for treating and reversing persistent pain. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended to be used as personalized medical advice. And now here's your host, Dr. Joe Tata. Hey there, friend. Thanks for joining me for this week's episode of the Healing Pain Podcast. This week, we're discussing how to treat chronic pelvic pain with a focus on endometriosis. Our guest is Dr. Jessica Drummond. She is the CEO of the Integrative Women's Health Institute and author of Outsmart Endometriosis. Jessica holds a license in physical therapy as well as clinical nutrition and is a board-certified health coach. She has spent 20 years working with women overcoming pelvic pain. She also runs educational programs for women's health professionals in more than 60 countries and leads virtual wellness programs for the treatment of endometriosis. Today, Jessica will discuss how to treat endometriosis through the lens of nutrition, lifestyle, and functional medicine. Of course, you can learn more by visiting outsmartendo.com. Okay, let's get ready and let's meet Dr. Jessica Drummond. Hey, Jessica, welcome to the Healing Pain Podcast. It's great to have you here this week.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Joe. It's my honor.
0: I was at CSM a couple of weeks ago, combined sections of meeting of the American Physical Therapy Association, and you gave a great talk on endometriosis. And Thank I you. said, I have to get you on the podcast to talk about this. I know not a lot of practitioners are talking about endometriosis, and they're definitely not talking about it from an integrated perspective, which is pretty much you built your entire career around. I think a good place to start is tell us a little bit about that career evolution you've had into physical therapy, women's health, health coaching, nutrition, and how you have this great Integrative practice and, of course, institute.
1: Yeah, so it's really just been organic like that—a very organic evolution. I started out in sports medicine and orthopedics, physical therapy, and then I specialized in women's and pelvic health, which is kind of you know specialty orthopedics around pregnancy and pelvic pain and incontinence and things like that—pelvic or organ prolapse. And then after my oldest daughter was born, that was a little less than ten years into my. Practice, I started, I got sick. And it was really an issue of probably a viral reactivation of the Epstein Barr virus, looking in the lens that I have now. But at the time, you know, I was a mystery, invisible illness kind of patient. Like, so I brought myself to the doctor that we send all the patients to that were like the quote unquote difficult patients, right? We had. What was going on? They weren't progressing as normal. You know, I was sent for antidepressants and uh, sleeping pills and, and, you know, antibiotics, and I was getting sick all the time. And really, what happened was the symptom of this underlying viral reactivation was a lot of hormonal imbalance, which gave me a lot of fatigue, really intense fatigue, anxiety, Um, sometimes pelvic pain. I was having ovarian cysts that were rupturing. And that continued actually until after my youngest was born. So that was off and on for about 10 years. And But over that time, I wasn't getting good tools from the traditional healthcare systems that I knew well and was working in. And so I had to explore what was then the early versions of functional medicine. It was kind of a combination of integrative medicine and chinese medicine but because my doctor was pretty conservative and it was a very kind of slow approach most of what i did to improve my health was make changes in my nutrition and my general kind of relationship with work and stress and exercise even because as a physical therapist you know if i i couldn't sleep so i just worked out harder and then tried to make myself more tired So I learned how to really shift my life from a lifestyle medicine and nutrition standpoint. Then I got certified as a health coach and taught which was a lot, really the rules of health coaching, what health coaching is, is lifestyle behavior change. So going from running around like a crazy person to taking care of my own health. And then I did a doctorate in clinical nutrition to get more specific for patients with pelvic pain and endometriosis To really fine tune the nutrition recommendations around things like gut microbiome and immunity and autoimmunity and digestive health, because there's a lot of symptoms of endometriosis that aren't just pelvic pain.
0: And in your doctorate, you did a a case study, I believe one, if not two, if I'm trying to remember. You and I talk sometimes offline. Tell us about that case study.
1: Yeah, so we published a couple of case studies. The first one was, they were both on patients with vulvodynia, which is vulvar pain, which often goes hand in hand with endometriosis, sometimes individually, sometimes together. And I was looking at it from a functional nutrition approach, assuming that it has some autoimmune factors. And that was kind of an unpopular opinion at the time. And I would say even now it's not well accepted, but even with endometriosis, we know that there's some genetic underpinnings, we know that there's, an infl- there's inflammatory issues, but now I was just at the endometriosis summit like two weekends ago and now some of the doctors are publishing how when you excise some of the endometriosis lesions, you see changes in autoimmune markers. So vulvodynia obviously is a little bit different, but it, as I said, it often presents with endometriosis. And I think a lot of times anything that's chronic pain has more of an autoimmune underpinning than most people give it credit for, except probably you and like 10 other people. <laughs> so, but I think that's an emerging understanding. And hopefully we'll have more research coming. But at the end of the day, so what we did in both cases, one person was a vegetarian. So that was a little bit more challenging of a food plan. It's hard to be more. Autoimmune paleo like when you're not having any animal protein. She did eat some eggs. And then the other one was pregnant at the time. So that was actually kind of interesting because the immune shift of pregnancy actually helped us for a little while because there's actually this calming of the immune response so that the fetus is not rejected, right? There's a shift. And so basically the protocol was around. Digestive function healing, you know, improving stomach acid and chewing and digestive enzymes and the lining of the small intestine and the composition of the gut microbiome, and then overlaying that with a very anti-inflammatory and immune-supporting food plan and lifestyle, things like mindfulness meditation, and again, re-evaluating relationship with work and stress. And family responsibilities. One was a graduate student, one was a mom, so who was working. So I think we can't underestimate those lifestyle factors of sleep and work life relationship and even general movement. You know, physical therapy is one thing, but day to day, like physical exercise in a modest way. So using that perspective, we were able to get complete healing for both of their pain. And in fact, both of them had sort of failed everything else. So they weren't really doing anything else at the same time, which made it a little bit easier to report on.
0: Yeah. Lots of great stuff from there. I mean, of course, thanks for your work in doing some of those earlier case studies on vulvodynia, looking at it from that nutritional perspective, because as you mentioned, not a lot has been done on it. And still to this day, it's growing, but you know, you're key to get that revolution going. And then of course, I think as physiotherapists, uh, we've talked a lot about the nervous system. It's a big thing like in physiotherapy and even psychology, but both you and I have been saying, okay, nervous system is important, but there's an immune system that's supporting that that nervous system Mm -hmm. that you brought into your work and of course the literature you've worked on. I know now you're tackling endometriosis, again, another topic that's really important for women struggling with pain. I guess let's just start kind of with basics. What is endometriosis if you can define it?
1: So there's even argument about that, but to simplify. As I said, it's a disease that I like to think of as kind of a benign cancer. So you've got lesions that are various different tissue types. There is some variability, but it's all tissue that's similar to the tissue that lines the inside of the uterus called the endometrial lining. Now it's not exactly the same, but it's similar. And the, by definition, This tissue is growing outside of the uterus. So one big myth is that if you just do a hysterectomy, you get rid of this. No, because the tissue is still growing outside of the ovaries, or on the fallopian tubes, or on the diaphragm, or lungs, or in the knee, or around the bowel and bladders, huge places, peritoneum. So it can be very extensive like that. It can also be very mild. Sometimes it's extremely painful and life disrupting, and periods are messed up and heavy and even in between periods. And at random times, there can be a lot of pain. And other times it's even silent. It's not deadly in the sense that like cancer, it's not directly going to kill you, but it does increase the risk for certain significant cancers, especially ovarian cancer by almost twofold, which is a low risk anyway, but it's still an important risk, I think, to be aware of. So there's an underlying genetic factor in that we see the same when there's research done on female fetuses or fetuses with uteruses that have, you know, been studied, there's about a 9% of those female fetuses present with endometriosis essentially before birth. These are done on autopsy fetuses. And so it's about the same population in teenager and adult women. It's one in 10, about 10%. So there's that underlying genetic factor. We also see it kind of running in families. Inflammatory, so there's a lot of increased inflammatory cytokines for people with endometriosis. And there is this autoimmune factor that we're now seeing even changes. I mean, clearly we're trying to change it whether someone has excision surgery or not. But there are two kinds of surgeries that are done for endometriosis to take out the lesions. Ablation, which is the more kind of common, but what the literature shows is more effective, is actually called excision, which is more like cancer surgery, where you're actually cutting the lesion out more completely. And then they're seeing some changes which help improve fertility when the autoimmune changes are when the autoimmune uh, picture is improved post surgically. So my goal nutritionally is to improve that autoimmune picture, whether or not someone has. Surgery and you know that situation is kind of up to them and their doctor, and, and it or if even if they do have surgery, kind of prolong that like, how can we make that even better? Not just by taking out the lesion, but overall, systemically optimizing immune function. And you know, one of the things you just said about like the nervous system and pain science, I think we always forget because I was working with a client literally just this morning who. She's undergoing a lot of psychotherapy and psychiatry for her nervous system per se and her brain neurotransmitters, but no one's really stepping back and looking at the nourishment of the brain. And so, I think when we talk about pain science and physical therapy, we we have to think about immune system and inflammation, but that talks directly through the gut microbiome and sometimes directly through like vagus nerve. But also just in general, so many women that I see, their brains are starving because their digestive system is so poorly functioning. Yeah,
0: it's a great point. I mean, we want to optimize cognitive function in some way, whether you're doing health coaching or whether you're using some kind of psychologically informed physical therapy, all of them are cognitive interventions as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, you and I know some nutritionists, uh, some psychologists who've also been trained in nutrition. Mm -hmm. we have these discussions in in professional circles, it's like, well, this makes sense because we're optimizing the physiology of the entire body. And when you optimize that, obviously, it's going to spill over into the central nervous system, into your brain and your spinal cord, obviously, into the enteric nervous system, which there's actually more neurons there than in your spinal canal, which is so interesting when you start to look at it. I just want to kind of backtrack a, Mm -hmm. a, a little bit here. You mentioned there are these growths and you mentioned a lot of different parts of female anatomy there. So are the growths happening in one spot or are they in mul- can they be in multiple places around the female anatomy? Because if there are multiple places, it would make me think that surgery may be indicated for the larger growths, but maybe you can target it through lifestyle for the smaller growths that haven't really impacted someone or you can halt the progression, so to speak.
1: Yeah. I don't, we don't really know if you can do that. We don't really know if just with lifestyle medicine you can actually sort of halt progression or reverse, you know, or kind of quote unquote shrink the lesions. There are some mouse studies that show things like that, but as far as I'm aware, not human studies. So, usually, if someone's doing a very complete excision surgery, which is something I'm supportive of in most cases is that they're going to be really skilled at this, they're gonna kind of do it all day, every day, and they're, it's a laparoscopic surgery, but one of the problems is when most doctors do it that aren't well-skilled in this, they sort of just look around, see what they can see, take a few lesions out, and may actually leave quite a bit behind or may not even see it because some of these lesions are very small. So right now, in terms of everything we know, the better strategy is really to excise as much as possible But you know, if I had more funding and more time, I think that's a really interesting question. I mean, many physical therapists have kind of asked me that, like, well, if we're talking about these lesions are made worse by inflammation and autoimmunity, like, wouldn't it make sense that we could potentially even impact lesions more directly? And I think that's certainly plausible, any data to really support that right now.
0: And then as far as your approach nutritionally to treating this. Is it still more of a personalized approach or have you begun to create your own protocols for women post-operative or even pre-operatively, if you're preparing them?
1: Yeah. So we, in an ideal world, it would be both. We would see someone about three months to four months preoperatively or if they're just not having surgery or where they had surgery a long time ago. And then there is sort of a systematic approach, I would say. You know, It's still always personalized a little bit, but I like to start with digestive function so how's the stomach acid digestive enzymes lining of the small intestine composition of the gut microbiome how well are they absorbing so very often i like to look at things like gi map tests urinary organic acids those are sort of the initial functional labs that can be useful and the backbone of the food plan we do kind of an elimination diet that's based at least for the first 3 to 4 weeks in you know similar to an autoimmune paleo food plan with considering that many of these patients often have oxalate sensitivities and or histamine sensitivities most commonly if they also have bladder pain when it comes to oxalate sensitivities and or you know just hives or the kind of person who's like breaking out in hives and i'm even more strict on the kind of autoimmune paleo and not just sort of paleo If someone has like chronic joint pain, because then I'm like, "Mm." you know, there's a lot of autoimmune comorbidities with endometriosis. So joint pain is a little red flag. Also, things like Hashimoto's, super common. So that's sort of the categories that we're looking at. I have a lot of people who come to me who have been vegan because that's sort of what they're seeing on the internet. And it is, you know, more anti inflammatory for sure than the standard American diet, right? The challenge with that is the lack, in most cases, of well-absorbed protein and the challenge we sometimes have with oxalates. And again, ultimately, I find that most people can go back to eating at least some oxalates and I don't take those out entirely. We're trying to, I always try to limit how much we really have to take out because there can be starting to develop like almost preclinical eating disorders. And some people come to me with that already, given that it's not clear and there's always like, take out this, take out this, take out this. So I'm sure as similar to your approach. What can we really add, you know, herbs and spices and more fat and more cooked vegetables and more high quality animal proteins? That's just sometimes a challenge for people who are more committed to being vegan.
0: Yeah. And just as you're talking, I'm just curious, is it also affecting elimination or does it have an impact on elimination in women?
1: Absolutely. Because first of all, the growths can be on the colon and also the small intestine. And sometimes the surgery requires removing parts of the, the colon. So we see a lot of constipation, some like kind of IBS constipation, diarrhea. And chronic SIBO is a huge problem because there's a, such a term as endobelly which is essentially bloating, which in my experience is mostly SIBO and or SIFO. And the challenge is because either the lesions or adhesions can be wrapped around the small intestine or the area where the ileocecal valve is, the ileocecal valve can be either not functioning very well or it's that part of the colon has been removed. And so you're always going to be dealing with SIBO. And then in other cases, you've got the adhesions around the small intestine. So, that creates little pockets of kind of slower motility and beautiful places for bacteria to thrive. So, I like to work a lot in combination with pelvic visceral physical therapy and sometimes using motility supplements and things like that. Um, Motility is a huge issue. The other thing that helps is certain yoga positions and exercises, but it has to be very comprehensive because you're dealing with the disease itself impacting the digestive tract. So sometimes we're really aware of that preoperatively. And then the surgeons can really be looking for that. And same thing post op, like they can, they can a lot of times give us more information once they see what's really going on.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the the manual therapy can be really important for people with visceral pain and helpful for for motility for a lot of lot of people. And then supplement wise, people are always concerned about what can I, you know, obviously we're going to work on a personalized diet. That's right for me and my biochemistry. Is there a supplement or supplements that are supportive for this condition?
1: Yeah. So I think we start with digestive function supplementation. A lot of low stomach acid, for sure. Some low digestive enzymes. Gut healing, like small intestine lining healing, things like L-glutamine, zinc, demulsant herbs, things like chamomile and aloe. Gut, like probiotics. For sure, and prebiotic foods for sure. And then more kind of therapeutic doses of anti inflammatories and immune supportive supplements like curcumin, relatively high dose, resveratrol, pycnogenol, which is French pine bark, has some interesting studies in, in humans, which is pretty rare in endometriosis. So that's an exciting one for me. But the antioxidants in general, because so many people with endometriosis really are struggling with mitochondrial dysfunction that leads to intense fatigue. And I think anxiety, although I think the anxiety is more related to lack of brain neurotransmitters, you know, lack of absorption of amino acids and or blood sugar instability. Because when you're restricting your diet so much and you're just in pain a lot, you're not, and your digestive system's always off, you're not eating for blood sugar stability. So sometimes amino acid supplementation or even blood sugar support, but usually we do that more with food. So I think supplement-wise, we're thinking mostly around supporting immune function and supporting digestive function.
0: Yeah. You mentioned fatigue earlier in your personal story, Mm -hmm. which I was happy to hear because I think as physical therapists, we kind of breeze over the fatigue part because we're always like so laser focused on pain. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the fatigue is kind of like the red blinking light in the background that should point people toward, hey, let's look at optimizing nutrition and see if that has an impact on fatigue, which oftentimes it, it does, along with other lifestyle interventions, sleep and relaxation, mindfulness. But that part is really unspoken of.
1: Absolutely. I think the fatigue is sometimes even worse than the pain because it's very debilitating. Like Having experienced fatigue myself, I really understand like what that means. And It's like if you go to sleep for twelve hours and you wake up exhausted, or you just can't sleep at all, no matter what you do. And so it's this kind of, as you said, it's it's a blaring light around mitochondrial dysfunction, which I think as physical therapists we're in a really unique position to support because we are always thinking more activity, more activity, more movement, more function. But if someone's already like that fatigued, which many people with endometriosis and other chronic pain conditions are, first we have to like restore the system. And there's almost like I had to stop exercising and I've worked out my entire life. I was a competitive gymnast, I was a collegiate cheerleader, I was just a person who worked out. You know, when I went to PT school, like everybody else, I started doing triathlons. You know, it was like peer pressure. (laughs) And so but I was so tired. I could not walk to the bathroom some days. I like, didn't have the energy. And even when I was on the way down because of my training, I was literally, I was like swimming every night. And then I was like waking up with panic attacks because I was in terrible condition metabolically. So what we have to remember is that people with chronic illness are foundationally depleted So start rebuilding that first. And I would say rebuilding circadian rhythm, because it's hard to sleep when that's off. Then we'll get to movement. Then we'll get to heavier loads. Then, you know, it's so much faster to progress that if you've got that foundation of resilience.
0: Yeah. The replenishment is so important. I'm glad you mentioned that. And lately, there's a lot of information, a lot of talk around different types of fasting protocols and I'm not sure what your approach is with regard to pelvic pain in general or endometriosis, but in my personal view is like, if you want to go for fasting between, let's say, six in the evening and six or seven in the morning, Mm -hmm. that's fine. But having people fast for days on end or skipping multiple meals is not a good course of treatment or an approach for people with chronic pain because they're so depleted.
1: Yeah. I think now, interestingly, for the pain piece, in my experience, that's related to More the autoimmune piece of it. Once someone, especially hormonally, because we haven't really talked about hormones yet, but there is some overlap of hormones with endometriosis. Less than I used to think, because we now know that the lesions are not all just estrogen-fed. That's kind of that was where kind of some of that vegan diet came from, was trying to just deplete estrogen. It's not that cut and dry, and also that's why all these estrogen-depleting drugs don't work that well. So, in my opinion, now we just kind of balance hormones. But that's where we start balancing cortisol rhythm. And you can't do a fasting protocol other than, I agree, 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. That's probably just generally good for people. But I don't do anything more intense than that until they're stable, like their energy is stable. And that's a good indicator. Like They're not fatigued. They're not having blood sugar crashes. Their blood sugar isn't all over the place. That's when sometimes when that all gets nice and stable, the resilience gets built up nutritionally, and to me that means like they're absorbing lots and plenty of and an excess of nutrients, right? And then we can do some intermittent fasting, which I suggest to be like six p.m. to eleven a.m., something like that, a couple of days, you know, a month, and that does help with kind of resetting the immune system to lower the overall pain. And I prefer to do it if someone's cycling regularly around days like 10 to 15 of the menstrual cycle, because that's when estrogen levels are highest and their blood sugar, the the cells are more insulin sensitive. So that's really how I think of it. Even a one day fast, or like I said, like two or three days a month of 6 p.m. to 11 a.m. But beyond that, You know, that's not really helpful in this population. And I think it just contributes to more eating disordered kind of mentality. Yeah.
0: And in that 6 p.m. to 11 a.m. fast in the morning, would you allow them to have like a cup of green tea or a half a cup of coffee just to kind of get them, bridge them to lunch?
1: Absolutely. And if someone's hungry, it's probably, you know, if they're really hungry or crashy or anything like that, it's probably not the right thing. But yeah, if they just want like a cup of green tea in the morning, that's probably good because sometimes they're going to really need that for bowel stimulation.
0: Yeah. And knowing you take an integrative approach, people may need other services, uh, practitioners to come in. Who else do you find is key potentially in the team that you find yourself referring to or relying on to
1: coordinate care? Yeah. So our team is clinical nutrition and health coaching. And then we absolutely sort of on the ground collaborate with physical therapy and May or may not be doing more telehealth physical therapy in, in this climate, and absolutely excision surgery, at least consultation with doctors who are well practiced in that. And that's kind of a rare specialty, so finding someone good is key. And then psychotherapy, for sure, lots of pain therapy. And even sex therapy, relationship therapy. this is a uh, disease that's very impactful on people's intimate relationships so that can be really valuable as well. You've
0: been working with women for over a decade plus. What would you like women with endometriosis to know about this condition and and finding treatment for, for it?
1: I really want them to know that there's a lot of hope and a lot more coordination. That's one of the benefits of sort of global social media. People who are working on this, there's not a lot of perfect solutions yet, but there's a lot more integrative collaboration that has been increasing very rapidly. So, and there's more and more good information available, you know, just generally. And there's more and more available globally through telehealth models than has really ever existed. So, there's communities available too of healthy, positive support, even among various local areas. So, it's a time to be very hopeful. While it's a very difficult disease, I think there's more and more good attention to it. And even some research funding we got just last year. Through the work of Endo What, which is a nonprofit organization, they actually brought together both Elizabeth Warren and Orrin Hatch, so kind of crossing the aisle, which is super rare in the US right now, to a lot of good research funding for endometriosis. And that's happening around the world as well in the UK and Australia and other places. So it's a time for hope.
0: And you've also written a book, which is a great resource for people. Tell us about the book.
1: Yeah, the book is called Outsmart Endometriosis. And it really maps out that integrative approach in a very step-by-step way. We have recipes and resources and helping you build that team. So that I feel like is is finally where my head is all in one place.
0: (laughs) And if people want to access that book, they want to download that book, where can they find that?
1: Yeah. So they can download it for free right now, an ebook version at uh, outsmartendo.com. It's also available on Amazon and it'll be available in print later this year and out in bookstores in February of next year, 2021.
0: Excellent. So make sure you check out outsmartendo.com. And then of course, for practitioners, public health specialists, women's health practitioners who are interested in learning more about the services and courses that you provide for practitioners, where can they find you?
1: Yes. Our institute is at Integrative Women's Health Institute, and we offer lots of training for all kinds of practitioners who work with patients with endometriosis across disciplines. And the book would be very valuable for them as well because, again, it kind of maps out that integrative approach and they can start to see who they can collaborate with.
0: Excellent. So I want to thank Jessica German for being on the Healing Pain Podcast this week, talking about endometriosis and other pelvic pain conditions, of course. You can find out everything about her, whether you're a practitioner or someone who's looking for solutions by going to the integrativewomenshealthinstitute.com. And of course, make sure to download her free book at outsmartendo.com. Make sure you share this information out with your friends and family on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or a Facebook group where you know there are people searching for help with endometriosis and other pelvic pain conditions. I'm Dr. Joe Tatt. It's been a pleasure being with you and we'll see you next week. listening to the Healing Pain podcast with Dr. Joe Tata. To subscribe to the podcast and learn more, visit integrativepainscienceinstitute.com. That's integrative pain science institute.com. Sign up to receive weekly updates, leave a review on iTunes, and share this episode with your friends.